Dot.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more. Check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome back to MCU.html. I am Nico. And I'm Kevo. And it's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Yeah. Interesting subtitle to give it after Guardians didn't come out with a Volume 1 subtitle originally. It's a little like turning Star Wars into a new hope, but I'm with it. I am too. I think it was a really big chance they took on Guardians and they took with James Gunn and this cast, and ultimately it paid off into one of the most successful out-of-nowhere space franchises in decades. Absolutely. It's interesting that this is the second and so far only franchise of the MCU to have sequel numbers. That's uh, interesting and significant, especially knowing they are, or at least at one time were, looking to expand the Marvel Cosmic film line. And I think they did successfully do that with Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel has just come out in real time for us, and I was quite happy with it. I don't want to talk too much about anything, but needless to say, Captain Marvel put some big ideas out into the Marvel Universe, and Brie Larson killed it. She brought Carol Danvers to life in a beautiful way, and okay, no more spoilers, but it was really good. Yeah, I agree with everything you're saying, and frankly, there's no reason to spoil it when we know we're going to be covering it in the next month and a half before Endgame comes out, so... You'll definitely be hearing our thoughts about Captain Marvel and Carol Danvers at some point. We were both cool with it, though. We very much were. But to a movie that we were less cool with, I think that Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is like somebody took a a sheet of paper that was somehow Guardians and redacted some of the emotional heart and put things like, learn to forgive your abusers and everyone is defined by their daddy issues on the page instead and said here i have made you this and thought we would be grateful for it i'm highly critical of this film i think it watches fun and i think at the end of the day it is a movie that watches fun that is not worth its problematic parts okay i can see that you and i have very different daddy issues so i'm sure we also react to this film in very different ways I do agree with a lot of what you're saying about a theme being forgive your abusers. I don't think that it exactly hits all the notes it's trying to quite right. I do like a lot of this movie, but it did not emphasize enough of what I wanted to see from a sequel. It's very pretty. I'll give it that. You know, these movies are getting prettier and prettier. They're getting... They're definitely getting better at finding ways to present things that even if you don't enjoy... If you need to sit through it to see all of the MCU, you're not going to want to bash yourself in the head. And you're absolutely right. It's gorgeous. It's not just gorgeous, but this film does give us things that I wanted. In fact, Karen Gillan's Nebula is incredible, this film. And Mantis is a breath of fresh air and a lot of fun. Baby Groot doesn't wear on my nerves like I thought it would. But at the end of the day, again... Thank you for introducing two more women to the main cast. I know Nebula had been in the first film, but 
here she's portrayed as a more complicated character and less of a, you know, Patrick Bateman in space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She was definitely a lackey in the first film. This definitely develops Nebula into a much fuller character. This movie, you know, it it you're still giving us a plate of something that we didn't quite want. So even if you make the best version of what we weren't really looking for, it's still not what I what I wanted to order. So without talking too much more about it, I'm going to be harping on themes a lot this film. And I guess that leaves us where we got to go. Kevo, BTS, GOGTV2. There's very little BTS to talk about for this film as well, because it's a lot of returning people. James Gunn was the only writer, and he returns as director, and Tyler Bates returned as composer. I have no new and interesting tidbits for you as far as he is concerned. Same deal. He composed some of the music beforehand so they could record with it. Again, it was fine. It didn't really sound too remarkably different from Guardians 1. I like it. He does some good work. So I guess the only person to talk about is the cinematographer, Henry Bram. He's an interesting guy. He doesn't really have like a ton of super, super notable credits early on in his career. He worked with director Kirk Jones on both Waking Ned Divine, which over in the UK was only called Waking Ned. Didn't know that. And he also did cinematography on Nanny McPhee. That's uh, some wide berth between uh, concepts, that's for sure. So because of this show, I got to watch a Marvel movie in a totally different way. I have learned so much about how these movies get made thanks to Kevo's research and comparing notes before we do an episode that I watched Captain Marvel in a completely different way. And I was like, I find parts of this film too dark. Who do I blame, Kevo? Because now I know it's not all the director. And I know the cinematographer plays a part. And I sat around and watched the credits in a different way this time. And it was really exciting. And I'm really grateful for that. Well, unfortunately, the person you have to blame for that is Ben Davis, who did Ultron, Doc Strange, and hilariously, Guardians Volume 1. I don't think any of those films looked especially dark, so that was weird. But I guess we'll talk about that more once we get to, you know, the uh, Captain Marvel episode. But back to Henry Bram, who is weird. I have to say, some of his projects, you know, I love digging up these random gems and talking about them, because where else am I going to? I did not know that a movie called Splitting Airs, spelled H-E-I-R-S, existed in 1993, starring Eric Idle, Rick Moranis, Barbara Hershey, Catherine Zeta-Jones, and John Cleese, about an aristocratic family of dukes in the UK. It literally has 8% on Rotten Tomatoes. Never heard of this film starring all of these major actors before in my life. 8% on Rotten Tomatoes is some, like, wow. That is, right? That's that's severe, man. That's like X3 levels of Are You Fucking With Me? He also was cinematographer on a 2001 70s period drama starring Jordana Brewster solving the mystery of her dead sister Cameron Diaz's suicide while falling in love with her sister's boyfriend, Chris Eccleston. I keep finding these things, and I'm like, when when did Cameron Diaz work with Chris Eccleston, and how have I never known this before in my life? That is interesting. I'm interested. Most of his other work is things like The Golden Compass in 2007. He's doing Maleficent next year. He's more known as an award-winning cinematographer for fashion and commercials and music videos, having worked with Dolce & Gabbana, Burberry, and Michael Kors. So, like... 
He's that, and he's also cinematographer on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. It's one of the reasons that I love looking into behind the scenes on these films so much, because that's just so fucking random. I, I don't even know how this guy got assigned this job. I've told so many stories at this point about people who have lobbied so hard to be parts of these films, and they, they, they want it so bad, and they want to be this person. And this guy is just, he's got his own thing going on. Not even sure how he got this job. Not complaining. I think it all looks great. It's just rando. You know, this movie is so stylized. Perhaps they really wanted to lean into style and hearing somebody who did big, amazing movies like Golden Compass, which actually is like visually really pretty. It's not like the greatest movie ever or anything. And knowing that he could do fashion, that's the right kind of blend here. Fashion and high fantasy sci-fi. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Absolutely. I guess that leaves just sort of the only place we can talk about the James Gunn controversy. James Gunn had a number of tweets of questionable humor involving pedophilia and some amount of statutory molestation and child abuse. While he did apologize, he did not remove the humor from his Twitter and did continue to say, oh, well, you know, I made those jokes. I regret them. Oops. There were bigger ways to be sorry, and I feel like he could have walked a better road here. I do believe there was a way to keep his job. Yeah. I think anyone who has a vested interest in the situation has probably looked into the tweets themselves, so they're probably aware of the content within them. You know, if he deleted them before this guy kicked up this whole storm, I would be more on James Gunn's side. If he had ever deleted the tweets before when they resurfaced, it would be one thing. But I'm pretty sure they're all still active. They're all still up currently. And, you know, there is some amount of responsibility on Disney. You know, look, one of James Gunn's first jobs was Tromeo and Juliet working for Troma Productions. He wrote a draft of that film that was so disgusting that Troma Entertainment founder and president Lloyd Kaufman told him, this is too sick. You have to cut some of this. It's, you know, look into that yourself. I'm not really into that sort of genre, so I don't feel the need to go into details about it. But, you know, it's gross out humor. And you know that that's this guy's history. So, you chose to hire him despite that. I think maybe they did react more swiftly than I would have liked, but I also understand their business decision, and frankly, so did James Gunn. He was pretty understanding, doesn't seem to hold any bad blood against Disney for their decision. I think a lot of people are more mad about this than James Gunn is himself, honestly. And it does bring us to a funny bit of... Aftermath, after being removed from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which will still use his script in some part, James Gunn was courted by DC to make a reboot, a soft reboot, it would seem, of Suicide Squad. Around the same time, DC published a comic featuring Batman cloaked heavily in shadow, and if you took the cloaked heavily in shadow image and turned the brightness up all the way and kind of washed it out, you could see uh, Bat Dick. He hangs dong. And the most interesting thing about that is ultimately DC pulled it and has issued a censored version. And 
Dan Didio said that that was a moment that made him rethink what kind of company DC was. And since then, they've been much more heavily into censorship and playing it safe. It's really interesting because the movies seem to then be leaning the opposite direction. They really, really do. And I strongly feel that part of that is in response to most of the MCU not being incredibly adult, being mostly, you know, Y7 and up, and trying to court that more hardcore audience. So it makes you wonder, is there now going to be a response in the DC films to this change in format for DC and this move toward more censorship? Are we going to see that in the films? Is James going to be pushed out of another franchise now? Well, right now, DC is leaning into their new golden boy, Jason Momoa, who did some pretty misogynistic and emotionally terrorist things. He took a co-star's book and like ripped the pages out for not paying attention to him. And it, she just kind of casually talked about this in an interview. And the reporter was like, uh, I'm sorry, that sounds uh, abusive. And She's like, well, that's Jason. He needs attention. And it's unfortunately in line with a lot of behavior, you know, little things here and there that I don't think people really notice, but all add up to a bigger picture. Like, I'm pretty sure Jason Momoa is the only person in either DC or Marvel franchise to actively verbally attack the other. He wears like, fuck Marvel shirts. Why is that funny or cute? He's the only person creating that controversy and competition. Most people have no problem enjoying both. I don't know why you would go out of your way to specifically antagonize like that. He is at best a child, at middle a bully, at worst something worse. It's unfortunate, but it's a lot of toxic masculine behavior. I guess the only final note on the James Gunn controversy is the fact that ultimately all of the actors who spoke out in his favor and who said that they wouldn't return to work without him are all returning to work without him, including his brother, Sean Gunn, and they will be doing it with James Gunn's script, even though he will not be helming in the director's chair. So we don't really know anything yet about who's going to be directing it. I think it would be kind of funny if Craglin took over for James Gunn's Yondu-type figure after Yondu dies in Volume 2, but I personally would kind of like if Sean Gunn would try and court his old friend Amy Sherman Palladino to direct Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm starting that campaign right here and now. Galaxy Guardians. You know you want it. Guardians 2 opens with one of the more memorable opening sequences, I think. There is something really unique about the way they show Kurt Russell on Earth with Star-Lord's mom. It's set to Brandy, and so it's more of that kind of same feel from the first movie. This is a very memorable scene for me. It sets up a movie that I'm really excited for, but then ultimately I don't feel it pays off. You know, I think it's interesting that we are starting another MCU film with a flashback set in or around the 70s or 80s. You know, that seems to be a repeated pattern at this point. 
I think the... No, the next one also starts with a flashback. Gosh, when are they going to break out of this pattern? And then they go to another flashback because it's Black Panther. Yeah, yeah, that shit's wild. Okay. It's almost like the way Disney princess movies always have a baby version of the princess in the film now so they can sell double dolls. Yes, yes they do. I guess that makes Peter's mom the mom that dies that makes the central heroine all sad. And my issue here is this is like ultimate fridging because, jumping around a little bit, we're going to ultimately find out that she dies of a brain cancer that Ego gave her. So this is like super fridging. This is a man kills another man's woman figure to further everybody's story. I just... I, I, and I feel like there is also something to be said about the limited characterization that we have of Meredith Quill. We are given this picture... We are made to feel like she is this mythic figure because of the way that Peter feels about her in his fuzzy memories, but our only actual experience with her makes her kind of look like young white trash, which, you know, makes sense for where Peter comes from, the time he comes from. You're not only making a woman your victim, you're also making a woman really weak on top of it. It doesn't engender a lot of sympathy from me as an audience member. It does feel like they're trying to say you have to care about this woman because she died, and you care about her progeny. And I just feel like there's not enough there to really flesh out into a whole character. She really is just an incubator and then a victim. And it's very annoying. Yeah, I completely agree. Opening sequence is over pretty quickly, and it will not be mentioned or thought of again until like an hour and a half into the movie, so let's quickly move on to 34 years later with the Guardians working together as a team, except not because of course. I think these musical number battles are cute, but by the end of the film, I'm over it. By the end of the film, I'm ready to move on. By the end of the film, I am ready for something different. They work, but it's just a whole bunch of gags, and I don't know. It's just not my thing. I get that. It's literally three minutes straight, the opening credit sequence of Baby Groot dancing around to Mr. Blue Sky by ELO. That's a really, really long time, and it's even more action-packed than the opening credit sequence from Guardians Volume 1. But Guardians Volume 1 was still at the time so unique and engaging and new you know, the opening credit sequence here is a great metaphor for the film as a whole. You're not giving us anything new, even if it is kind of different from the original. You need look no further than the repetition of the Groot freezing in front of Drax gag from the end of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1. By this point, Drax has to know that Groot is fully articulated and talking again. There's no way that he doesn't, so literally the only reason that they do that in the opening credits is to make the audience go... Look, it's that thing that I enjoyed from the first movie, because it doesn't make sense for him to do that in the middle of this battle where they're fighting for their lives. It's too meta exclusively to make the audience go, I liked the first movie. And you can only have so many of those jokes before you're just a parody of yourself. Especially when you're talking about a movie that inspired fanaticism. I feel like you couldn't walk around Comic-Con without running into two Star-Lords and a Deadpool at one point and a yandu dressed as mary poppins yeah absolutely and as soon as we leave this pretty non-substantive fun music video sequence we go into a highly expository scene 
And the first thing I notice, these gold people are, you know, this is very James Gunn feeling. And I also notice that Rocket is a dick. Rocket is an out of control dick. I don't like Rocket this movie. I do like Rocket this movie, but I specifically dislike him to start and enjoy his growth as a character. But that doesn't make up for the extreme dick that he starts as, and I can't agree with you more on that. I don't think it's cute or funny that he just stole these things from these people. It just shows that he's a child and has no impulse control. And I enjoy the arc that we're going to see with him throughout this film and then into Infinity War. But you're still a fucking dick and you almost got everyone killed. My biggest problem with this movie is that I don't understand why these people are all still hanging out with each other. And I'm not even saying why they're all still friends. Because you're not friends. You know, community at least does a good job, I always feel, of always making me understand, even when these characters are assholes to each other, why they would all still be friends with each other. And I don't understand why any of these people want to be around each other. I, Gamora is the only person that I could kind of see it for. And I do feel they do a good job of making us understand why Peter wants to stay with Gamora. And Groot just loves everyone. But other than that, do you even like each other? And if you don't, then why are you still doing this? I do find the infighting goes on way too long throughout this film. I just want to note that I always forget that Nebula is what they fought the giant monster creature to get. That this is where Nebula comes back into the film. I always forget that. And this is where they bring up the batteries. And it's just, there's so much in this scene. And then all of it is so much infighting. And it's just kind of like infighting, 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 infighting. Oh, right. Ego. And there's just like so little, but so, ugh. Yeah, I always think that they're doing it for money, like in a mercenary type way. I constantly, I forgot until you said it just now, and we just watched the fucking movie. I completely forgot that Nebula was the bounty that they were collecting for protecting these people's batteries. Yeah, because cause batteries are a giant metaphor for this fucking movie. Like, as soon as we got to that point where Ego was like, I'm just going to use you as a battery, I was like, oh, right, because that's the thing that they were protecting earlier in the movie. And that's the device that they're going to end up using to defeat Ego as a battery. Because you got to hammer those plot points real hard. Otherwise, they don't fit right. Especially when you're trying to fit it into a mold that already worked for its pieces last time. And then we get some expologue from Aisha, I think her name is. Uh, and if it's not, I like that name better, so I'm going with it. Where she says that he's more than human because... If you didn't get that from the end of the last movie, now we're really going to remind you right here at the beginning of this one. I do think a point that you had made, which is that when we originally saw Volume 2, it was in a marathon immediately after Volume 1 in theaters. And when you saw a lot of these things literally back to back with each other, so within half an hour of Glenn Close telling us that Peter Quill is something more than human, to see this high priestess tell us the same thing was like, all right, we just heard that last movie. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, I really can't stop stressing photocopy. Photocopy with redactions and corrections. But at the very least, this cute little twist right at the top where all these gold people, the Sovereign, start going after the Guardians, that's something that wasn't in the opening of the first film. It's a fun, cute chase sequence. I like the Sovereign. I find them amusing because they are consistently shown to be kind of emotional dicks despite the fact that they're not supposed to be. 
and you know that that makes me laugh ben browder has a cameo here as one of the sovereign using his horrible horrible sebastian accent god bless him though he's still beautiful and i think you can't look at guardians without seeing influence from farscape so it's nice that farscape kind of got paid back in a weird little way yeah i definitely agree i appreciated it but you know then i'm as i keep saying drawing that comparison and seeing by this point in farscape they liked each other like come on come on guys another thing that's introduced at this point in the film that i i don't remember from guardians volume one that we are going to start seeing more and more in space is these jump points it's introduced at the top of the film here it's going to be a major plot point later when Yondu, Kraglin, and Rocket go through like 175,000 or whatever the hell it is. And then we saw it pop up again, not spoilery, but in Captain Marvel. It's a concept that they are still keeping up in terms of Marvel Cosmics. So that's really cool to see it introduced here and then still being mentioned. I agree. It was a nice way that they connected Captain Marvel to things like this. So that worked for me. But unfortunately, for as fun as a lot of the chase sequences, there's also, you know, the problems that we keep saying that we have that we have with these films. You know, even Gamora, she's like yelling at Rocket for not paying attention to flying and throws a wrench at his head. Like, you're supposed to be the reasonable female trope, and yet you're being just as bad as everyone else. I don't know how they haven't died several times over, and that's what's making it difficult to watch the movie and the franchise for me y'all should have killed each other by now drax just jumping into the fray putting on that space bodysuit and taking a bazooka and shooting at the ship that's following them you know i think later on when we get some more flashes of drax's emotional core i came up with the perspective of he lost his entire family of course he's semi-suicidal but that's something i had to come to on my own it's not something that is really hit very hard and made clear to the audience. I understand that you need to be careful that you're not hitting people over the head with a frying pan, but sometimes it needs more than a light touch as well. This is on the heels of a couple of comments from you, though, that they do keep hitting things on the head with a frying pan. James Gunn stressed all the wrong things in this film mm. and underplayed all the others. It's, it's a lot to take. But we don't have to take it for much longer because they crash and they fight again because, of course, that's all they can do. And, you know, it's little moments like when Peter says if what he had between his legs had a hand, it could have landed the ship. Like, what does that even mean? Your dick would have landed the ship? Do you even listen to yourself sometimes, Quill? I mean, I think he's supposed to sound like that at this point. He's overcompensating in this huge testosterone feud that he and Rocket are having with Drax occasionally jumping in or Gamora occasionally jumping in. The whole thing is just a little too much trolling each other. I don't know. And, you know, in some ways you can contextualize it by saying Peter is an overgrown eight-year-old who never really grew up, but then he's also a severely sexualized eight-year-old, so think about the metaphors that you're throwing out there. Just saying. So... About 25 minutes in, we finally see Yondu in this film. There's another cute Howard the Duck cameo, also voiced again by Seth Green, so that's cool. I think one of my other big problems with this film is I don't see what they do to Yondu exactly as a retcon, because all of the new information they give us, 
him being thrown out of the Ravager Corps, what he did to get thrown out and be isolated by all these other space pirates. It's not that it can't fit in with the first film, but that's a lot of context we don't get for the character for the first film that is sort of important. It's a huge element of this man's psyche and character if he is disavowed by every other space pirate. When we see him in the first film, we just think that he's this cool badass guy, but it turns out that all the real cool badass guys think he's kind of a turd. I can't remember the number that Sylvester Stallone specifically says. They're like there's a uh, hundred Ravager um, factions and you just lost the business of 99. It's some number like that. But then you're saying 99% of the people that are like Yondu don't like Yondu. That's something that you really need to know about a character like that when they're introduced. Because at the end of the day, I walked away from Guardians 1 thinking Yondu was essentially a child abuser. They make a lot of arguments that Yondu psychologically and physically made life a living hell for Peter Quill growing up and raised him in a horrifying element. And sure, you can even say, oh, you know, he grew a conscience and he didn't. Yeah, I'm sorry. Am I supposed to be happy that he didn't help kill a kid and instead kept the kid and made him a pirate? Is that really the best he could have done? I don't think so. So I feel like this movie glorifies forgiving your abuser in a really uncomfortable way. And once again, we're hitting certain themes extra hard and other themes not enough. We go almost directly from Sylvester Stallone saying that the colors will never flash over your grave to Yondu, which we know is going to happen at the end of the film, to the next scene where Drax says, I thought Yondu was your father to Peter. Because Peter is his daddy. Like, we're really hitting these themes extra hard in certain places and not giving enough attention in other places but we do get the introduction of mantis who i think i respond more to the performance of mantis than i do to the character herself because it's stuff like she asks to pet drax's puppy why does mantis know what a puppy is like there's i I don't understand what her level of an intelligence is at certain times because there's certain basic concepts that she seems unfamiliar with but she knows what a puppy is it is the sliding reality of interdimensional and intergalactic conversation in comics and sci-fi there's just certain idioms that should never translate that do and there's things that don't that should and it's just the fun and magic of sci-fi i also enjoy mantis i think part of what throws me off though at this point is because you have so many childlike characters throughout the film, whether it's Mantis or Drax or Groot, even Nebula. Yeah, you wind up having to portray these characters as different kinds of children, I guess. And Mantis is kind of like the sweet little girl, and oh, she's harmless and adorable. And Drax is like the dumb little boy. And Nebula is the sociopath who tries to kill all your children. Angelica Pickles. Yeah, when you think about it, they are all kind of children. Even Gamora, at times, she's the most mature. Now I want to see some sort of crossover that's Guardians of the Galaxies of Rugrats. Interesting. And I think it does help underscore that everybody has daddy issues. It's just frustrating. Yeah, whether it's from your daddy being bad or your own issues from being a daddy like Drax, having lost his family. Everyone's got them. And... In some ways, he kind of looks at Mantis as a child figure, like a caveman taking in a genius. 
Well, that's one of the interesting... Well, which one's the caveman and which one's the genius, first of all? Uh, Drax is the caveman. Mantis is the genius. Gen- genius might be a bit of a stretch, but I definitely see where you're coming from. She's probably way smarter than him, for sure. One of the interesting things that I thought about their dynamic in this film, though, was that I couldn't fully tell, and this is the problem with the heterosexual lens, I couldn't tell. Were they trying to push he sees her as a daughter? Were they trying to push romantic with the way that he says that she's beautiful at the end of the movie? I don't know, and frankly, they could probably take it either way. And I don't know that they should or that you should be able to either do father-daughter dynamic or I'm going to fuck you dynamic. That line probably shouldn't be so easily blurred. No, it shouldn't. And on that note of daddy dynamic, we have Peter meeting Kurt Russell as his dad and dad whisking him off to uh, hang out at his apartment for the weekend the way that distant fathers often do and the group splits in this very dramatic moment set to the chain. It does not really engender a huge emotional response from me personally. Some small, probably, but something I realized as we were watching this scene was this is the point at which I start to like Rocket more and more, and it made me realize that Peter Quill is just a terrible influence on Rocket Raccoon. I like Rocket Raccoon. Peter just brings out the worst in him. At this point, I kind of stop liking the film. I think there's something so fake drama about the team splitting in two. The team just splits in two! It's not that crazy! It would make sense for this group of people to occasionally split in two. And nothing about the way that they're talking makes it sound like they don't intend to come back to each other. So it is just hyper-dramatized for no reason. They're all mad at each other right now? Sure. But they literally made plans to all get back together. That they're just all in pissy moods. Uh, Yeah, I'm just going to keep pointing out nobody in this movie gets along for way too long. So then we go into the next musical fight sequence of rocket setting up all the booby traps for the pirate ravagers i enjoyed this one but i also still understand the larger context of what nico is saying of there's just way too many of these you can't build them this is basically just a showcase for music videos i wasn't looking for a yellow submarine in the mcu and this one is infinitely less effective than the opening one, which is so big and flashy, when, and it's the whole team. This one is Rocket, and it's just not as effective. Just doesn't take me anywhere. And sure, okay, it's to get us to the next plot point, where Nebula is now in charge, and Yondu and Rocket and Groot are all prisoners of the Ravagers, which is in some ways one of the better subplots in the film, and also one of the more cloying ones. But it does provide a lot of the humor heart that made the first one work in this film. Yeah, and it helps that at least it's against antagonists that we can root against this time. You know, the second battle being chased by the Sovereign, you stole from them. We shouldn't be rooting for you. You did steal from them. But like, the Ravagers are... More and more as the film goes on, revealing themselves to be really bad dudes, so you can absolutely root for Rocket just blowing them the fuck up. But that's another uh, unfortunate flaw of this film. After the Ravagers were like our allies in the first movie, and they were great and showed up and helped the Nova Corps on Xandar, now they're all horrible, horrible monsters. So that immediately tarnished something that we enjoyed in the first movie. 
because the movie is trying to, in so many ways, capture elements of the last movie, initially the Nova Corps are kind of the enemy for Star-Lord because he's on the wrong side of them. He's only endeared to them by saving the universe and giving them an Infinity Stone. So it's one of those things where he kind of bribed himself back into good graces. The Ravagers did help last movie, and now they are sadistically torturing Groot. They are torturing the cute little baby you've rooted for all film. So in a little bit, when, and I can't describe it as anything else, Yondu commits wholesale mass murder for four minutes set to music, you're supposed to cheer for it now. But again, Yondu literally just killed his 50 shipmen. He literally just goes on a murder spree. And which, yeah. And it's a murder spree in response to a murder spree. But it's, once again, I'm not sure what feelings James Gunn and this film are trying to make me feel. He, Taserface being he, he kills all of the crewmen that are still loyal to Yondu. And yet we're supposed to laugh at things like when he's saying that Taserface is metaphorical. Or when he's saying that Groot is too adorable to kill. A person who would literally shove his crewmates out of an airlock, I find hard to find funny saying things like he finds Groot too adorable. And I actually find it hard to believe that he would have that humor or levity or feeling inside him at all. Groot should have just been fucking snapped like a twig. Not that that's something I wanted from the plot, but if this is the kind of character you're trying to give us, it's a little bit weak sauce to pull back on going all in on a character like that. But so we'll get back to the pirates. I really like the FX on Ego's backstory. I thought the visual dynamic of it was cool. It certainly helped making it feel less extreme exposition. And I appreciated that because this movie began to break the cardinal rule of show not tell a lot and just started telling me a lot of things over and over. So I appreciate that they tried to show them while telling them. They still just sort of narrated some pictures, but it looked pretty. This movie consistently looks pretty. And you know, it's interesting, the small moments that I appreciate from this film you know, you mentioned earlier how idioms translate when they shouldn't, but they also made sure to go out of their way to include things, whether for comedy or not, that provide different perspectives on culture. I know Drax talking about his dad telling the story of impregnating his mother. It's mostly a joke, but, you know, the conventions that we have about sex really are so human. I do appreciate throwing in characters who would have a different perspective of what that really means and what it means to their culture. It was one of the harder to argue points that Drax made because mostly Drax is a psychopath, but he made some really interesting points there where I had to be like, yeah, okay, other cultures might be super cool with watching their parents bang. Who am I? Yeah, pretty much. So Peter's mopey for a while. Ego has a statue of his mom up that Peter's admiring for like... I, I don't know. Was that always there or did he put it up because his son came over? I don't know. I have to imagine he created it at some point for this child because the other children had different parents. And later on, when we find all their skulls, I'm sure they saw their moms too. Yeah, yeah, probably. You know, I just, I don't entirely follow everything about Ego's motivation, 
how much of what he's saying to believe. He says Meredith was his water lily, but I just don't know whether or not we're supposed to believe at any point that he actually was in love with Peter's mother and that that's why he killed her, or if he just doesn't give a fuck about any of these women and he was just looking to create another ego. I don't feel like I ever got final answers on that. I feel like a guy like Ego has a lot of loves in his life. Okay, yeah, okay. I could see that. I could see that. So we get an inevitable scene of Peter and his father yelling at each other that, I swear to God, I watching the movie, I thought, oh, it, it, this can't immediately transition into the scene of them playing catch. That must come, like, in another 10, 15 minutes in the film. No, it's the same exact scene within five minutes. They have Peter yelling at his daddy, and then they have them having a catch for the first time. It's a lot. I literally laughed out loud in the theater. Like, I, I, I literally laughed out loud and people stared at me. But I thought it was the silliest thing I've ever seen. It was the silliest thing I'd ever seen. Like, really. I mean, if this, instead of a movie about daddy issues, was a movie about patriotism, this would be wearing an American flag uniform to your baseball game where you are playing for the American apple pies. And everybody's eating hot dogs and they're drinking cold sarsaparillas and everybody sings, take me out to the ball game at the seventh inning stretch. It's just, it's, oh my God. And I think my bigger issue with this scene than anything else is I think a lot of dudes try to point to moments like this as emotionally cathartic when I think James Gunn himself is completely aware of how corny this scene is, that it's intentional on his part, that he plays it up on purpose, because his focus is on the fact that this godlike creature basically raped and murdered Peter's mom. So he thinks it's funny that there's this emotional moment where Peter is having a catch with this guy, because there's all that dark shit going on underneath. And I think that's where James Gunn's focus is. And I can even appreciate that as a creator and, you know you enjoying telling stories like that in that structure and using it to poke fun it seems like them having a catch but i think too many people just see the surface they just see peter's just like me i want to have a catch with my daddy and that's not the whole picture that james gunn is painting here but before we can fully fill in the rest of that picture we have a little bit more left with the pirates which nico touched on a moment ago slightly i literally clocked it the sequence of Groot trying to figure out what a fin is, is almost three full minutes. That's a really, really, really long time to stretch one gag. And again, that's one of the problems with this movie. I really agree. It just winds up taking forever to get to the meat of things. And then it's just a bunch of kill, kill, kill. As Nico said, I think one of my big issues with how murdery this movie is is the fact that they know kids get a kick out of Guardians of the Galaxy. That's why there's a cartoon show of it. And it's just so extremely violent for a franchise where I, as a person, am told that people like me can't be seen in films because kids can't handle that. At a certain point, I start to feel pretty insulted that parents are super-duper okay with murder happening like 500 times in this movie, but no gay. And that's where I get more annoyed than anything. It's the opposite in Europe. So that's pretty funny. So we go from pirates killing each other to sisters trying to kill each other. Nico has a face on. Okay, so I think it's really great 
that we have two strong, powerful women, but the fact that they're fighting over how daddy treated them is reductive. And it's so over the top that the Nebula Gamora fight literally involves a gun, right? Gamora has this giant gun. It looks like a dick with balls. And it's, of course, obscenely enormous. And I just can't handle it. It's so much, but I do love the way the two women are able to come together throughout the rest of the film. That's really important and really powerful. It's really well executed, and it sets up so much of why these scenes with Nebula in Infinity War are so powerful. But at the same time, I just feel like everyone who ultimately loves each other has to fight too much all film. You know, there is something feminizing about the fact that it's two girls fighting over daddy. Absolutely. I think the film does a decent job, though, of making it be more about siblings than about specifically female siblings. I think a lot of the stuff between Nebula and Gamora would have completely 100% worked if either or both character were female without making them specifically coded male. And that's something that I greatly appreciated about it. There is a scene when Nebula is spilling her guts out to Kraglin and saying all these things about how she was tortured and wants revenge on her sister and her father. And I was worried that it might come across a little bit. She's talking about her feelings because she's a woman, but it really ultimately comes across more. She has no social graces and therefore has no filter. So it really works for the character. You know, there's a moment at the top of this scene, though, when... Gamora is sitting by herself in a field and it's just this beautiful landscape and her sitting in silence and there's these two weeds that are scraping against each other disturbing her peace and she violently lashes out with her sword to chop them both down. I don't know why that moment stuck out to me so strongly as a metaphor that I feel this film is trying to push forward which is that people will always annoy each other and disturb peace. Maybe that was just me reading too far into a tiny moment with two weeds. Maybe it's not. Who knows? It comes on the heels of Star-Lord saying, why are you trying to take this away from me? So you're already in like an uh, place. The dialogue in this film is so not smooth. You mean like Peter saying he's going to make some weird shit? Yeah, this is... uh, Yeah, by this point I'd really checked out of the movie and was really annoyed, I'll be honest. Well, the good news is, by this point in the movie, it's almost over, because literally everyone finds out that Ego is evil at the same time. Once again, I didn't think that that was possible, that it really was all on top of each other like that, but um, there it is. Uh, It's also pretty quick that Ego uses his power to hypnotize Quill to, you know, not have a problem murdering everyone in the galaxy to help his daddy, and... Again, immediately on top of that, that the spell is broken because his father says that he killed Peter's mommy. And so he lashes right the fuck out like Peter Quill apparently always does and always will do as we find in Infinity War. And that cuts to the part of this movie that I think works the least, the giant blobs. Yeah, I, you know, my only argument in favor of it is sometimes threats are just what they are. And there isn't more to tell and there isn't more to do with them in terms of building them up or showing us more of them. I'm not saying that's necessarily this film. I'm not even necessarily saying that's a defense of doing that in any film. But, you know, there's no other thing to say, honestly. So this charges us toward the big climactic final battle. 
And this was the point at which I realized we've barely seen the Star-Lord helmet mask thing. Yeah, that was definitely an interesting choice. I guess they felt people saw all they needed to see of it in the first film, and they wanted to lean more heavily on Chris Pratt's face. I don't know. I mean, if kids loved it enough in the first film and you don't make any changes to it for the second, showing it more isn't going to sell the toys any better. You would just think they would have done some kind of refresh on it, like they did a refresh on every Iron Man costume and Cap costume and Thor costume. You would think they would have done some kind of refresh on it. But instead, I guess the refresh this movie was thicker mutton chops. <laughs> and all that Hasselhoff stuff, I guess. So this is the point at which we're all supposed to go, oh, no, they love each other. They're really friends. Everybody does want to save each other out of nowhere. Right, right, right. This is also the point at which Peter Quill sees his father figure for the first time and literally cries out his name in surprise at one hour and 33 minutes into this movie because they have not interacted and he has not expected to see Yondu for any reason. Their only interaction in this entire film, right up into the point of Yondu's death, it's 25 minutes of this whole movie. It's all at once. And as far as we know, much like I was saying about Steve and Sharon in Civil War, we don't know that Peter and Yondu have even spoken since Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1. And it's perhaps my final big problem with this film. I understand that we have come to care about the characters since the film's initial release and through the course of this new film, but these characters haven't even interacted and we're supposed to really, really, really care when one of them dies in 25 minutes. And we're supposed to feel this moment, especially between the two of them, because of what you've told us about their relationship. But they barely interact in this entire movie. You know, I said 25 minutes, but all of that 25 minutes is not them interacting even. No, there's so many subplots and so many characters that they need to cut between because there's so much going on at this point, even though nothing's happened the entire fucking movie. And I thought that Throughout the entire movie, Drax kind of represented the immature humor character. He made the joke about turds earlier. Mm. He laughs at Peter having sexual desire for Gamora being revealed. He's super childish throughout the movie. Makes the jokes that, like, you know, people into that kind of humor, like, you know, you're ugly to Mantis. And the ow my nipples bit just takes me out of the fight so much. And it just doesn't do it for me. It was supposed to be a callback because he mentions earlier that the device hurts his nipples, but I don't know. I don't know if it's Dave Batista's delivery or it's just that was an awkward moment to put that gag. I can see where you're coming from, though. I feel kind of similarly about the incredibly popular I'm Mary Poppins, y'all. Mostly because Peter immediately says, yeah, he's the coolest. Mary Poppins is a fucking woman, and I am very defensive of Mary Poppins. I loved Mary Poppins Returns. I thought it was a great movie, and I love that character, and I... Why wouldn't you just tell him that it's a woman? Tell him, yeah, she's really cool. Why Why would Yondu not be able to say, I'm just like this really cool woman? Come on, guys, are you fucking kidding me with this bullshit? Because you can even be like, I mean, they're pirates, but you know what? They're space pirates, and I'm pretty sure they've had sex with monsters of every gender and aliens of every gender and... Probably a couple humans, I guess. So one of the other things is, and I hope I'm not jumping too far ahead, but we get two really major splits in the story. We have the 
Rocket sets up Groot with the bomb that kind of runs into the escape and then possibly having to leave without Star-Lord, and we have Star-Lord versus Ego. I think from the moment Star-Lord realizes he has abilities that he can use here, he is too evenly matched at fighting Ego, who's had lifetimes of practice. I don't disagree, and I think it's one of those human-centric things that I believe the creators would probably like to say, well, it's because he's human and humans are special. We always like to believe that that bit of humanity is going to make us more powerful than gods. Sure, but you're throwing a lot of crap in at the end here. I also have a huge problem as a viewer with the fact that you know, the scene between Groot and Rocket is really entertaining. I thought it was really entertaining when it was in every trailer for this movie. Why would you put a scene featuring these two characters that we are going to repeatedly see in danger, why would you put a scene featuring them from so late in the movie in your trailers for the movie? Because so frequently the trailer division has nothing to do with the film. To a certain degree, you are correct. But especially this franchise, which is so concerned about spoilers. They are usually much better about that sort of thing, and I really am just curious about where that decision would have come from. Who says, yes, let me use this scene from the last half hour of the movie? Or did they not feel that any other scenes worked well enough to build a trailer like this out of? I don't know, but it was it, it's a weird choice. I don't I really don't enjoy when movies do that. It didn't ruin the climactic scene or the climactic battle for me in any way, but it certainly made me go, oh, well, I got this part already. Another thing that I noted when watching the final battle here is the fact that Peter Quill thinks that Gamora dies at about like an hour and 45 minutes. She falls when, you know, Ego is tearing his own planet apart, and he has every reason to think that she's dead for like 15 minutes, and he does not nearly seem as incensed, enraged, emotional as we get from him in Infinity War. I'm not exactly sure what to make of it, whether it's just a disconnect between filmmakers, whether it's genuinely bad characterization, you know, make of it what you will, but... One of the things that is argued for why Peter's emotional state is justified in Infinity War is how much he cares about Gamora. But other than being sad in the moment that he sees her fall, he doesn't seem to have another concern again until they are ultimately reunited at the end of the battle. It could be that he has different priorities because he's fighting the embodiment of reality that is his father, but it's probably more likely that... They didn't need that emotional impact here, so they didn't use it. Meanwhile, they needed it in Infinity War so that Chris Pratt could be the least likable character in the movie. Which is why, even with only 20 minutes of screen time together, they used the emotional moment of Yondu's death with Peter. I do have to say, in defense of this film and its actors, I don't have a problem with any of their performances. I find their performances of these things that I don't like from the film as likable as I genuinely can there's a moment when peter is hypnotized by ego and ego mentions killing all of his siblings and you know chris pratt does this really great performance of looking like confused and conflicted like he might almost break out for a second and then ego strokes his pun intended ego and says well peter but you're more special and he is right back in it you know these 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 expressions these emotions these actors do a really good job of playing the piece that they're given 
but it's what's on paper that I really more have a problem with and feel could have probably used a little more editing, a little more work. Mostly because it stretches out emotional scenes that I think don't have the impact they're trying to make them have. I feel like one of the big things that Guardians 2 attempted to do over and over again was subvert expectations, both for us as the viewer and for the characters. Star-Lord starts the film thinking someday he'll find his real daddy and everything will be good, but he had his dad all along. Gamora thinks that she can reach Nebula and find a way to save her sister, but realizes that her sister never needed saving all along, I guess? I don't know. Rocket and Groot have this weird need to always be part of the side plot and never part of the A plot, poor guys. Drax does not grow in the least, but I think we're supposed to think he does because he stopped calling Mantis ugly. So much of the payoff in this movie is completely hollow and doesn't go anywhere. It's a pretty music video to a familiar song, and I think they did the original better. He doesn't even say she's not ugly in the end. I know I mentioned it first, but he says you're beautiful and then immediately adds on the inside. Which, you know, again, and I use this phrase way too much, but that's like a metaphor for this for this whole movie. You give us this emotional moment, but then you kind of immediately take it back or diminish it somehow. And, you know, sometimes that is life, but I'm still allowed to not love it. I want to bring up something that we managed to completely skip talking about. The Goldie Fox come back, and they kind of represent the opposite of the Nova Corps. Whereas the Nova Corps helped out last movie, now the Goldie Fucks are trying to also fight the Guardians. And Kevo shared something really interesting with me. Evidently, there was a possibility that this was going to be the introduction of Adam Warlock, and I'm so glad it wasn't. I think that's even why I forgot, because I enjoy their contribution to the final battle. I, I, I genuinely do, but it's forgettable to me because there isn't anything big or dynamic to make it thrilling and engaging. I think perhaps if Adam Warlock had been introduced here, I would remember that they were even in this scene at all. I'm not saying I wanted it. I think it's better to save that for another film, to give a character like that a lot more room to breathe, especially when you've done that already to so many female characters. You've said you aren't introducing them because you don't want to just shove them in. I really appreciate that you're then doing that for male characters as well. But then ultimately their contribution to this final battle is forgettable because i forgot it then we get the denouement of them shipping yondu out you know in his flames i really love the gag of craglin giving peter quill a zune that really made me laugh microsoft apparently got really pissy about it which just makes me laugh even more i don't like the use of father and son by cat stevens but mostly because cat stevens was 22 when he recorded that and i don't like 22 year olds saying they're old apparently he wrote it as part of some musical about some sort of russian drama and then that never got produced and so he just sang it still weird i just think it's a terrible song yeah very warbly very uh very maudlin the movie just sort of goes out on a whimper it just kind of comes to an end and i just kind of shrug and yet it won't stop ending because we have all of these mid-credit sequence. The weirdest part for me, though, is we cut to black and we're in black for five seconds before the credits start. What was that pause for? It was like the end of The Sopranos. I was like, is that it? They wanted to give you a moment to reflect before they went into the Guardian's disco boogie fever, which was cute. I thought it was cute. 
I'm glad it was there. It was a fun little touch, and it was playful, and it was energetic, and it was cool. But it didn't add anything to the film. At the end of the day, I think Guardians 2 is just a thinner take on Guardians with more problematic underlying themes. There's more fridging. There's telling us that we should forgive our abusers. Just, I don't know. At the end of the day, this was the episode I think I talked the least on because this is the movie I care the least about. I think at best you can say the themes that they were going for in Guardians of the Galaxy were you should be happy with the life and love that you have. And it doesn't matter how much of a dick you are. If you just do a few nice things right at the end there, the right people will be sad when you die. Not sad that this one's dead. So that does bring us to Spider-Man Homecoming. Yeah, I'm really excited about this one. This was a really big deal. This is certainly a film that when the MCU started, we were not sure if we were ever going to see as part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think I've seen it the one time, so I'm excited to get to see it again. This is like a really interesting run of movies we're coming up on. It's Homecoming, Ragnarok, Black Panther, Infinity War. It's like a lot of big movies all at once. I'm excited to rewatch it. I remember liking the take on Spider-Man. I don't know that I remembered particularly caring about the Vulture, but I remembered that it's the Vulture. That's cool. I'm super into Zendaya, so I love MJ, and I'm excited. I remember being nervous because we weren't really sure what to expect. We knew that this wasn't going to be an origin film because we had already seen Peter Parker post-origin, and there had already been so much criticism, even at the time, of how many times the Peter Parker, Ben Parker dies origin story had been told in film. So no one really had any idea what to make of Marvel's own attempt at a Spider-Man film. But, you know, I thought Tom Holland was cute, so I thought he was a good choice. I'm excited to get back to talking about it. I think I've only also seen it the once, which makes me sad. I definitely need to watch it a few more times. I'm excited to get into it. Yeah. So until we get into it, Kevo, where can everybody find you online? You can still find me on Twitter or on Instagram at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. You can check out our awesome comic, Kid Riot, at KidRiotComics.com, where we have over 500 pages of inclusive, diverse superhero comics available to read. Don't forget to check out X's for Podcast, where we take a look at the Marvel X-Men comics line, starting with Giant Size X-Men number one and making our way forward, which features our amazing boyfriend Jonah and our best friend Kyle. I'm also on Now and Again with my childhood best friend Chris, where we talk about the Now That's What I Call Musics in order. You can also find me over on Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. All right. So until next time, we'll see you. Peace out, y'all.